Ohio. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. There's certainly time. If it cools off this next week, like they say, it's going to be time to think about putting compost on the yard. Certainly time to start planting your fall vegetables. A lot of the fall flowers, don't be planting pansies this early, but you can certainly plant. If you want something like pansies, plant the little Johnny Jump Ups, little miniature pansies. Okay to plant those while it's still this warm, but golly, you've got petunias, you've got dianthus, you've got calendulas, you've got all sorts of beautiful things can go in right now. So if you're looking for something to do this weekend, <laughs> you call me and I'll tell you a lot of a lot of things that will be a lot of fun to do. But uh, let's just go ahead and get started with Linda. Good morning, Linda. Good morning, sir. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you for uh, calling. Uh, I was wanting uh, some information with regards to winterizing my lawn without using, you know, the the herbicides and something sure. that will will damage or, or be in danger uh, for my dog. Right. Well, I'm with you. I would, uh, you know, I would fertilize with any good organic fertilizer, whether it's Medina, whether it's Maestro, whether it's Nature's Creation. Um, all of those fertilizers are. Very, very pet friendly, very people friendly, and don't contain any toxins. Um, <laughs> it's funny with with so many of the um, poultry manure based fertilizers. Some dogs ignore it, but some dogs think that it's uh, just the greatest stuff in the world to either eat or roll in. Uh, if you're concerned about that, the Nature's Creation fertilizer is one that is based on alfalfa meal and is not nearly as attractive to the pets. But I would, uh, you know, any of the good organic fertilizers can go on any time. They do not have to be watered in. They're going to help your, uh, your all of your plants, not just your grass, but your tree shrubs, everything else, will be more winter hardy. And it just gets them off to a real good start next spring. So that is, that's the starting point. Um, the other thing, as it cools down, anywhere that you've had a weed problem and do your whole yard if you can, a thin layer of compost, maybe quarter to half inch of compost over the yard goes a long way toward totally stopping the weeds and does a lot of other good things. So to me, that would be the second step in winter rising. And then when we get into midwinter, when we get along for Christmas and New Year's, by that time your turf grass is probably going to have turned brown and any green weeds that come popping up, there's always some dandelions, always some crabgrass, always some henbit, uh, things like that start to sprout. And you're perfectly safe to go out with uh, the vinegar and orange oil mix, two ounces of orange oil to a gallon of strong vinegar, and you can just spray that um, all over the, the grass and everything else because since the grass is dormant, it will not hurt it, but um, it will kill the green weeds. So I'm with you. I don't like the herbicides. Uh, I don't think the pre-emergents are very effective, but I do find that uh, uh, you know the compost goes a long way toward preventing the weeds. Anything that does come up after your grass is browned out, uh, it's very safe to spray with the vinegar and orange oil. Again, not going to hurt dogs or cats or kids or anything else. So those are kind of my three steps to getting ready for winter. Okay, thank you. And could you uh, repeat the orange oil uh, uh 
the numbers formula <laughs> yeah yeah you take a gallon of strong vinegar if you're buying it at the grocery store i would go for the pickling vinegar which is either eight or nine percent uh if you want to go a little stronger than that most of your nurseries are going to have 20 percent vinegar and um to that gallon of vinegar you add two ounces two jiggers of orange oil and then just a little squirt of dish soap in there. Mix up only what you need because you can't really store it. If you leave it in your sprayer, it'll be hard on the seals on the sprayer. Try to put it back in the bottle. Sometimes it blows the cap off of it. So um, if you just need a little bit, you can do like a quart of vinegar and a couple of teaspoons of orange oil. Just mix up what you need. And the nice thing, too, about using the vinegar-orange oil mix for killing weeds is things start to die in about five minutes. So it's uh, it's not a long wait to get rid of all those winter weeds that are sprouting up. Okay, thank you so very much. Well, it's my pleasure, Linda. I appreciate the call this morning. Uh, looks like we have Jan and Carla and David. So, Chris, let's bring up Jan. Good morning, Jan. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I have a primaria question to start with. I have okay. a friend that tells me, uh, her plumerias are planted in the ground, and they look gorgeous. I just saw them the other day, and I said, uh-huh. why are they looking so good? Mine are in pots. They don't look that good. And she said, well, $300 water bill will work. <laughs> <laughs> and she's probably pretty accurate about that. It's uh, This has been one of those summers that it's just been, you know, hard to keep things properly watered uh, without spending a fortune. Now, of course, you hear me talk about rainwater catchment all the time, and that's one of the smart ways to go about, uh, you know, having some free water. But uh, the thing about having plumerias in the ground is she's going to have to dig them all up and bring them inside because 31, 32 degrees, they freeze and die. You can cover them. Um, you know, we'll get them a few degrees protection, but I've lived in San Antonio long enough to see it get really cold, and Plumeria will not take freezing weather. Well, that was my question. She tells me that um, once they freeze, she just goes back, goes out there and cuts them down to the ground, and they mm-hmm. come back the next year. Well, she either has them in a very protected area or she hasn't had them in the ground very long because um, I would say, you know, certainly nine out of people that of ten people that I talk to, when they freeze, they just rot away completely. So, uh, as beautiful, yeah, as beautiful as they are, I'm going to get them inside. Now, uh, I used to work with a wonderful gentleman up in the hill country named Alton Grimm, and he planted all sorts of things in his yard. He lived up in Waring, and uh, <laughs> come fall every year, here he'd come in driving with all these plants that he dug up out of his yard i pot them up in containers for the winter months put them in the nursery and then he'd take them back home and plant them out in the spring so uh some people choose to do that with plumeria they can actually go totally dormant over the winter months so um you can some people just hang them up in the garage or you know just put them somewhere that they are protected from freezing weather and then they just plant them back out in the spring so uh, Bougainvillea's hibiscus, of course, those things you're going to have to continue to get some light and some water. But plumeria uh, tends to drop all of its leaves, so some people just get it inside and forget about it until March or so. I still like keeping them in pots because I think they bloom sooner and bloom more heavily. But uh, whatever works for you is fine with me as long as the plants come through it okay. 
Dude, I was scared to try it because I don't want to lose my plumerias. Yeah, I would not leave them outside. <laughs> Your friend's pretty brave, but uh, I don't think she's been through a really cold San Antonio winter, and sadly, she may have an unpleasant surprise one of these days. I, you know, who knows about our crazy weather? I think people have to be really insane to, you know, get in the weather forecasting business. But uh, uh, it's certainly not out of the question that we could have some severe cold. And uh, I'm like you; I love the plumerias too much to let them freeze at all. Even right. more, the chance of having them die completely. So the other thing I wanted to ask was, which is the best uh, rye grass to plant? You know, what I recommend is one of the dwarf rye grasses. For years, we have used the dwarf perennial rye, uh, which are always annual here. This year, the dwarf perennial rye have not been widely available, at least anything that we really like. So we are doing actually a dwarf annual ryegrass blend. They're using three uh, dwarf ryegrasses. And the one you want to stay away from is the so-called Oregon rye. It gets so tall, it is so waterlogged that it just, you try to mow it and it bogs down your mower and it's just downright ugly. So I think any of the dwarf ryes are going to be, are going to work pretty well for you. And we're just right on the cusp of time to put them out. If we do indeed get down in the you know, nights in the 50s and highs in the 70s, it's certainly going to be time to put out ryegrass, either if you're trying to, you know, just cover some bare ground or if you want to overseed your grass. So this year we're going to be using a dwarf annual rye rather than dwarf perennial rye, but the perennial ones, you know, they always die out anyway. So pretty much going to be the same thing. I think this, uh, one of the things about the dwarf annual is going to be a little bit less expensive this year, and we're always looking for ways to save money because we sure do go through lots of it. Do you all have that at your nursery? We do. Came in this past week. Okay. And have you heard of SOS? That's one we carry. Oh, okay. It's uh, That's one of two names for it, and I'm trying to remember what uh, um, what the other uh, name for it is. Uh, it's, you know, that's, uh, some, it's called something like special for overseeding is where the SOS comes, for, comes from, is where they get that acronym. And um, I think that's going to be one of the very good ones, but this will be the first year that we've uh, grown it, so we'll see how it does. But all the tests look real good, and uh, so I think that's probably the one we're we're certainly going to do this year and see how it works out. Is it bagged or is it by the pound or? We do it. You know, it comes to us in fifty-pound bags, but very few people want fifty pounds of seeds, so we print out a legal label for it and we put it in one pound and three pound bags or we'll bag up as much or as little as somebody needs we we believe in customer service unlike some folks around but uh no we can we can do a pound of it we can do you know 10 pounds of it we can do 50 pounds of it whatever works for you what do you think about for a half an acre about how much um we normally figure about um uh, are you going over existing sod, or is it basically bare dirt? Yes. No, in the back we have uh, zoysia. Okay. And then, I don't know if I'm going to do it in the front. We have St. Augustine in the front. Yeah, we we would the normally recommend... Big, the backyard's real big. Yeah, we we figure about five pounds per thousand square feet, about half pound per hundred square feet. Double that if you're on bare dirt. But overseeding, you don't want to do it too heavily. So if we said five pounds per thousand square feet, half an acre is roughly 
you know, 20,000 square feet. So you're probably looking at uh, at probably 250-pound bags to really do that effectively. <laughs> Half an acre is a lot of ground. You know, it's 22,000, roughly 22,500 square feet. But the ryegrass, each seed makes just one little clump, one little sprout coming up. It's not like right. Bermuda or zoysia or other things that make a runner. So you have to, it takes a lot of it if you really want to create a nice green look. And, you know, that's, you have a very large yard if you have half an acre of, uh, of area that you do want to do that. Most folks are looking at, you know, two, three thousand square feet where you're looking at twenty to thirty thousand square feet. So instead of, instead of, uh, uh, a little bit. It would take quite a quite a fair amount to look nice on that much. You right. can always put it out thinner, but it will look. Uh, if you don't put it out, re- you don't want to put it out too thick, or it can actually be damaging to your permanent grass. But if you put out it out too thin, it just looks like green weeds coming up. So uh, I always yeah. recommend if if that's more seed than you want to buy and put out, just pick the areas you want to do and go ahead and put it out at the proper rate. But maybe don't do all twenty two thousand square feet. Right. So you can do uh, with spreader, right? Oh yeah, yeah. That's by far the easiest way to put it out. Okay. Well, thank you so much, and have a great day. You do the same, Jan. Thank you for the call this morning. (laughs) Goodbye. All right. We're back to gardening. It's Carla and David and Robin and Maggie. Carla's up first. Good morning, Carla. Good morning. I have a question about the tree ordinance. I have some friends working with a a low-income housing committee, and they're working, trying to make sure that the mature trees and stuff don't get cut in the process of making housing I guess but I was looking at the ordinance that they sent and I just know it very very generally and I was wondering if you have any um, more knowledge and can say how at this point in time we can use it to get the strongest ordinance for saving trees well, in San Antonio um, and- Unfortunately, the the city doesn't enforce things very well, and um, it is applied much more strongly to commercial development than it is to residential. Residential development, they let the developers do pretty much what they want to do. Um, If they will enforce the ordinance that they have written, and it usually takes somebody complaining, they basically have to compensate for any trees that they remove Uh, if they want to remove a tree they will find a way to remove it but they have to replant uh, trees and you know I I can tell you a whole lot more about Kendall County than Bear County because I I was involved in the original ordinance and I got very frustrated because uh, of several things number one they treat a hackberry tree just the same way as they would treat a heritage live oak and (laughs) you know it doesn't make sense but uh as uh, as we sometimes say with our present city government, it doesn't have to make sense. It has to make dollars and cents. And so um, <laughs> well, and the, more so. 
<laughs> yeah, and and so I think your best bet, if you're concerned about a piece of property, is to take photographs of what's there, and in effect let the developers know that you're watching. Uh, complain to the city or notify the city, you know, that development is taking place, and just let them know that you want to be sure that the uh, tree ordinance is followed. And um, you know, there's some developers out there that do it right. I can't. It's but it's kind of like you know, kind of like we say about politicians. It's the same that 95% of them give the rest of them a bad name. And so yeah. there are a lot of very unscrupulous developers out there, but there are also some some very conscientious ones out there. You will know that they are uh, more or less, you know, getting off on the right foot if you start seeing, you know, different colors of tape, different colors of flagging on the trees because they are supposed to conduct a tree survey is the very initial thing to determine what is there and then come up with a mitigation plan. So um, I, you know, I, I think, and and I'm not a confrontational person. I just kind of tell people how right. I expect it to be. And if it's legal or if it's illegal, then, then they don't want to deal with me. I promise you that. But I would go, if you know who the developer is, and just say, hey, we would really love to see a copy of your tree survey. And that'll do two things. That'll give you a chance to see what's on the property. And it's a very pleasant way of reminding them that if they're planning to develop the property, that they are required to do a tree survey of what is already there. So that's kind of where I would, I would, you know, who was it? Uh, one of the Teddy Roosevelt, maybe they said, walk softly and carry a big stick. And that's how I try to deal with the developers and you know the uh i think most people want to do what's right there are a few out there that will just want to do what's expedient but um you know i i i hate to say it but so often um the the city is much more reactive than they are proactive and they will respond yeah. to a complaint but they may not be out front trying to keep something bad from happening so i you know you just need to do your part again try to document what is already there try to open a dialogue with the developer and simply ask them you know what are your plans because um a, you know, if a developer is going to come in and spend millions of dollars to hopefully build a nice development, it, there's just no array, no way around the fact that there's sometimes trees that cannot be worked around. I know when we built our new parking lot at the nursery, we protected about 18 or 20 trees, but there are a couple of them that had to go, and we, we replanted about five or six trees out there. But uh, just just try to maintain an open dialogue and uh, complain to the city if uh, if people are not doing what they should do. That's you know that's that I wish I could tell you something stronger, but I think that'll be your most effective course of action. No, that that makes a lot of sense, and I thank you a lot for helping me think it through and. Um, to give them some some help on this because yeah we don't need to lose any more trees at this point no <laughs> that we need, that we need to. <laughs> and you're right um i mean i wish that there was more understanding of like certain trees do like incredible stuff for us mm -hmm. and they're worth a whole lot more yeah. in terms of environmental um offerings to their surroundings and then right there's not a lot of knowledge of that, but I think just bringing in the knowledge and saying, and I'm really glad to know about the tree, the that they have to do a tree survey because that'll yeah. help a lot. So they have to lot. do a tree survey and they have to do some sort of mitigation for valuable trees that they take out and. 
you know, again, it's not as as strict as some of what we would like, but in some cases, if there's simply no room on the property to re- plant replacement trees, uh, they can plant trees in a park, they can plant trees in a green belt, uh, but they need to, and they need to have their feet held to the fire, that they do need to replace, you know, what they are removing from the property through what we call mitigation. So uh, you stay in touch with me and let me know if I can be any further help to you, Carla. It's my pleasure. Okay. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you, and goodbye. Uh All right. Let's talk to David down there on line number four. Good morning, David. Well, good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. How are we doing today? I'm sitting out in the sunshine, or actually in the shade, broadcasting, and this beats, no offense, Chris, this beats being back in the studio any time. So I I love doing remote (laughs) broadcasts when the weather's nice, and uh, fun being out here at Phoenix too. It's just a pretty place to be, and awful nice people. Well, I got a couple questions for you. That's what live, I'm here for. <laughs> I live right north of Gonzales, and I got nothing okay. but sand out here. Sand and right. post oaks. And I've, uh-huh. I've had it cleared for a while, and I, I want to make a yard or somewhat of a yard. What? I'm trying to figure out what type of grass I, I should put down. I got a layer of clay about two feet underneath that that just soaks up water. Mm-hmm. That's all I got is sand. Well, sand, I'd, you know, I'd rather have sand than rock anytime. And True. sand actually will grow very good plants. You can sometimes, uh, you need to add a bit of organic material. You, of course, will have to water more often than somebody will have to that's a heavy clay soil. But uh, how big an area are we talking about uh, wanting to put turf grass in? Uh, I've got about an acre cleared, but I can narrow it down with a fence. Okay, and um, is uh, do you have an adequate water supply? Are you on a well? I mean, in Gonzales, yeah, you have a whole well. lot more water than we do in the hill country. But um, my old buddy Alton Grimm I was referencing earlier, Alton taught me that there's no such thing as a good grass, as a bad grass, as good plant, as a bad plant. Um, Bermuda grass is very commonly grown. Uh, its good characteristics are you can plant it from seed, which is much less expensive than planting it from sod. Um, right. It is very drought tolerant. If you stop watering, it goes dormant. It doesn't die, and then it comes back when it gets moisture. Um, it has very few insect or disease problems, and you can keep it very attractive. Uh, uh, the bad side of Bermuda grass is it turns brown with the first frost. It will have chiggers in it, uh, which may be an issue for kids or grandkids or animals or things like that. And um, uh, again, it's just it's not the smooth, soft, beautiful grass. Uh, that you know some of the others are now if i were planting bermuda in a reasonable area i would probably be planting the tiff bermuda t-i-f-f which is a very Mm -hmm. compact one it's one they use on golf greens only problem with tiff is you can't plant it from seed it has to be planted from existing pieces of sod but uh it's a tough hardy durable grass and it requires full sun but it does not mind the blazing texas summer sun it thrives in it Uh, other grass that you can use of course st augustine is very popular uh, St. Augustine has a much longer green season. In fact, mild winters, it never turns brown. 
uh, grows quickly. It uh, does not have the chiggers in it. It does, it, it's, to me, it's a softer grass. It's a nicer grass to live on, so to speak, and I love the fact that it doesn't have chiggers. The problem with St. Augustine is if you stop watering it, it dies. A lot of people right. incorrectly say that St. Augustine uses more water. No, it takes just as much water to keep Bermuda looking nice or Zoysia looking nice as it does St. Augustine. The difference is you stop watering Bermuda, it goes dormant. You stop watering St. Augustine, it dies. So... Uh, make your choices there. St. Augustine will also grow in the shade. At least some varieties do much better in the shade. Bermuda will not. Bermuda has to have full sun. So that's the good and bad of those two grasses. Your Can third you do choice. St. Augustine from seed? No, no, you only do it, only do it from sod. Okay. Um, third choice, of course, is zoysia. And zoysia is some of the nice things about it. It is a slower growing grass, so it needs less mowing. But because it's slower growing, it doesn't stand up to foot traffic as well. I grew up with a front yard that had a permanently etched baseball diamond, you know, in, in it in zoysia grass. So it doesn't stand up well to little feet, whether they be two legged or four legged creatures. Um, I love what Howard Garrett says. Uh, he says zoysia is a beautiful grass to look at, but not necessarily to live on. Um, zoysia is normally planted from sod, although there are a couple of seeded varieties. I do not like the broad-bladed zoysias like jammer because they are much more susceptible to brown patch, but emerald zoysia, el toro zoysia, those are two of the prettiest grasses you will ever see, but the you know, they just don't have good wear resistance. So it's kind of, I always encourage people, don't plant more lawn than you need because it's going to be a lot of work to mow it, to fertilize right. it, to water it. So um, be reasonable in the amount of grass you want to plant. I would, you know, if it were me, what I would plant is a small amount of St. Augustine grass just for kids and grandkids and pets. And yeah. then I might even go with the native grass mix that I don't have to mow. You go to Douglas King Seed or, you know, a good company like that, and they have native grass blends. And it's not going to look like a, it's not going to look like a manicured golf course, not going to look like a lawn, but it's going to be a very low maintenance, you know, nice ground cover area. And your sand, you know, you can do beautifully with some of the native grasses. They're just not something you can manicure and mow and make that, you know, putting green surface out of. But I would tend to have a little bit of very nice grass and a lot of native grass for me. Well, it'd be the tractor on one side and a lawnmower on the other. There you but, go. Uh, another question I had for you: um, compost. Mm -hmm. I, I, I've looked and looked and looked and tried to find a, a good book for compost, and it's all has to do with out of this area. And do you have a good recommendation for a book? Well, Malcolm Beck wrote a book years ago called The Secret Life of Compost, and that is probably as good a book as you're going to find. It is still available. Um, I imagine you would find it on Amazon. Uh, you probably find it, I'm not sure in the Gonzales area, if, if your nurseries over there will have it. Uh, I imagine you can still find it at Gardenville, but it's called The Secret Life of Compost, and it sort of uh, tells you everything a person would ever want to know about compost. There is a simpler book uh, that is called Let It Rot, and it's it's a little thin, very inexpensive paperback book by Stu, gosh, I can't say the last name of the author, but uh, that is that is a very simple 
you know, 30-page book, and it, like I say, it's just called Let It Rot, and uh, then the more complete work that Malcolm did, which is probably 100 pages uh, uh, and much more in-depth, uh, is called The Secret Life of Compost, and those t- both are going to be very applicable to this area. Do you carry those over there at Shade the Green? We... We usually do, but on, you know, our bookshelf, uh, one person can come in and buy six books, and all of a sudden we're we're low on some things. So call before you make a trip. But uh, I know we normally keep the secret life of compost on the shelves. So I like coming over there. My daughter works at Kara's Canine <laughs> Retreat. Oh, so well, then I'd there. say you... Yeah, we we love Kara's. My puppy dogs, my my Hannah. Uh, we can walk out the door, and when I'm going to be going out of town, and I can say, "Hey, do you want to go to Kara's?" and she will literally drag me to the front door. So, uh, yeah, it's a great place over there, and and Kara certainly has some outstanding people working for her, and I'm glad your granddaughter's one of them. Granddaughter, my daughter. You made me feel or your old. daughter. Your daughter. Oh, I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry, I misunderstood. But okay, <laughs> your daughter is, is one of them. But yeah, she's she's working with great people, and we sure do appreciate him, David. Well, well, listen. I think that's all I got for you, sir. I appreciate it very much. Then you get out and uh, be sure we don't shut out that cool front. We need that cooler air and a little moisture along with it. So, anyway, appreciate the call this morning. Back to gardening, and we're going to talk to uh, Robin and Maggie and Vicki. And Robin is up first. Good morning, Robin. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Beautiful morning. Hey, it certainly is. And, and supposedly this is our last hot day. So, give you something to look forward to this week. We'll see. exactly my attitude I have a plumeria that was absolutely fabulous this year Mm -hmm. Uh, and I must say uh, listening to your uh, client before talking about his plumeria uh, plumeria, mine was out all last winter and died to the ground died Mm -hmm. right down in the pot and came back incredibly well so I was I couldn't believe it. It was fabulous. Well, fabulous. We were we were fortunate that other than that early freeze, it was not a real hard winter. I don't remember in San Antonio the temperatures really getting much below uh, what twenty eight degrees or so, but again I've lived in San Antonio when it went to five degrees, so um mm-hmm. we were all fortunate that it didn't get real cold, but I'd I'm still reluctant to leave plumeria out in a, uh, I never use the word normal when I talk about Texas weather, but in a typical winter, uh, they may or may not come back. Okay, yeah, I understand. Okay, um, its leaves are turning brown and yellow and falling off, and this just kind of started um, last week. Is mm-hmm. that normal? A little bit of that is normal. Uh, Plumeria are also very susceptible to red spider mites this time of year. Well, actually, throughout the summer months. Turn over the back and look on the back of the leaves. Look very, very carefully and see if you see what look like little tiny sand grains on the back of the leaf. And if you have real good eyes, you may even see some little beigey, orangish, uh, tiny little spots moving back and forth. 
Uh, in a severe infestation, you'll actually see a bit of very fine webbing form, and uh, this is where they get the name spider mite. But uh, spider mite is very common on plumeria. It's not a threat to the life of the plant, but it'll certainly make them drop their leaves prematurely and uh, may keep them from blooming quite as well. So that's the, that is the problematic thing that sometimes occurs at this time of the year. In the next six weeks, they are going to turn yellow and drop most of the leaves. But uh, if there's not a problem associated with the leaves tend to just more turn yellow in fall, when you start seeing a lot of brittle, crusty brown spots, I check them very carefully for spider mites. If you see spider mites, either spray them with the spinosad soap uh, that's probably the best way to get rid of them. Uh, in the future, if you'll spray every couple of weeks with liquid seaweed, you'll key, usually keep from ever having spider mites in the first place. Okay, thank you. I'll take my magnifying glass out there. <laughs> That'll work. Oh, That'll yeah. work just fine. Okay. Okay, last week I talked to you about my lantana, uh, that it, um, the buds were not, it was not flowering. Right. So we, I went back and looked at it with a magnifying glass, and you had mentioned um, that the the buds might be eaten by a tiny caterpillar. Either a tiny caterpillar or there's another little insect called the lace bug that gets on lantana. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so I did find some holes and some buds that were still green, but mm-hmm. then most of the buds had turned black. Okay. That is probably a, this different bug on there, which is called lace bug, uh, and you'll sometimes see some damage showing up on the foliage as well. These are very, very small yes. little insects on there. And uh, normally, if you really maintain your fertilizing, you really maintain your watering, the lantana simply outgrows the damage. When we have a real hot, dry summer like we're having now, probably would be a good idea to spray at least once with and again i like the spinosad soap it just works well against almost every insect totally safe for you and the pets and the plants but i'd probably give it a give them a spraying with spinosad soap and um next year i'd i'd start a little bit earlier now that you know what to look for uh try to be a little proactive and you can keep that lantana in full bloom all summer long Okay, great. Thank you. We we um we cut off all the little black buds. You know, we uh-huh. cut down anything that was discolored or or not healthy looking. We cut. Right. And then and yeah. So, okay. Uh, we will see what happens. Do that okay, and fertilize and water. If it stays warm, you still have a chance to get some more good flowering before. Uh, uh, before they freeze for the winter, if they freeze for the winter. But uh, Lantana loves fertilizer, so be sure you're feeding regularly. Okay, thank you. And the and the um, next question, and last, I have some miniature amaryllis. I'd never seen them before. A friend gave me all these little bulbs, and I put them in a, in flower pots, and uh-huh. um, they they bloom these pink pink flowers is really cute and they do a long um, linear uh, leaf okay and they're very they're very cute they're still uh, the leaves are still green and I wondered if I leave them in the in the ground will they survive a freeze or normally yes 
Yes, normally they will. I think they are probably actually a, a form of a rain lily rather than a true amaryllis. But uh, okay. they they are cold hardy. They need to be forced into dormancy either by drought or freezing weather to come back and bloom again uh, for you next season. But normally they are totally cold hardy here. Okay, great. I had never seen them before. They're They're very nice. Really oh, nice. they're beautiful. Unfortunately, flowers don't last real long in the heat, but right. <laughs> they I, I just love something unusual and different. And uh, uh, there's a yellow mm-hmm. form, a pink form. Uh, there's several different forms of the uh, of these little different kinds of, of rain lilies, as they're called. And uh, um, I, you, you've got a neat plant. Grow them up, let them propagate themselves, and share them with your friends so that we'll see more of them around. Right. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Love your program. I appreciate it, Maggie. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Bye. All right. It's five minutes away from eight or from uh, that would be nine o'clock. Yeah, my clock's my clock's off on the hour as well as on the seconds here. Anyway, we're back to gardening. We're broadcasting over at Fannix Nursery and Garden Center today. And uh, let's see. Looks like uh, Chris, my right, is Maggie up next. Let's let's visit with Maggie. Then it'll be Vicky and Robert and Cindy. Good morning, Maggie. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing very well. Loving being outside on a pretty morning like this. Well, I'm telling you, I was at Fanex yesterday and loaded up my car with growing green and bougainvillea, <laughs> and, and going to come back to mo- today for some more. <laughs> so, well, it's uh, it's a good weekend to do it. That's for sure. Yes, it is. I wanted to uh, double check, make sure I'm going to do the right thing. Uh, hopefully, this is the last hot day. And I'm going to take advantage in, uh, of it and do a new flower bed with the vinegar and uh, orange oil. Mm-hmm. And I want to make sure now, do I just uh, spray it all and let it die and then cover it now with uh, today with compost? And let it, do I need to pull the grass up or let just. No, let it... it's. Now, now the vinegar and orange oil is going to do a very good job of killing crabgrass, uh, most of your weedy grasses. Unfortunately, there's really not anything short of nuclear weapons that you can be sure will kill Bermuda grass. Even the stuff we don't like, like Roundup, does not kill Bermuda grass on the first spraying. So, um, the spraying with vinegar and orange oil, you're going to cut out all of your weed type grasses, but if you're fighting Bermuda grass, I'm I'm not going to tell you it's going to totally eliminate it because it won't. Okay, I've got St. Augustine. What I do for St. Augustine, because St. Augustine doesn't have any underground runners, and I take the little tool that's called a grubbing hoe, kind of like a pickaxe, right. but with a flat blade, and it's it's not a great deal of work. I just go through and just cut right below the level of the runners and then just peel it back because it will not come back from the roots. And I actually find that, for me, that is easier to do than mixing up the orange oil and vinegar and spraying. But um, St. Augustine yeah. is totally different, of course, for Bermuda and once you do that, and, and if it's a good-sized area, don't do it all at once. Go out and, you know, spend 15 minutes doing it. And I know in 15 minutes I could easily clear probably two, 300 square feet. But uh, um, that that's how I would go after St. Augustine. It's not going to be nearly the problem to eliminate that something like Bermuda is. Oh, okay. I'll do that. And then, then do I put the compost on top or do yeah. I put garden soil uh, or just? I would I would put a little fertilizer down. I put a little compost on top of it, and I would plant whatever you like. Oh, that sounds great. We'll work on that. All right. Another question is: uh, someone told me like on the, the more native plants, like the lantanas, the salvias, the 
uh, coccinius and so that we mm-hmm. shouldn't fertilize them very much. What, what's your oh, word no. on that? Well, if you want them to be pretty, you fertilize. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Just be sure you're using the organic products, but uh, right. they survive without it. But, uh, you know, we don't want them to survive. We want them to thrive and bloom we as much as possible. Thrive. That's right. Yep. Look good. And so I would, I would fertilize with some regularity. All right. Last question. Uh, I got a lot of plastic pots and hanging plastic hanging baskets that uh, I don't have a use for, and some of them are damaged and torn. Are those best to recycle, or should we take them back to a nursery or to in a nursery? Uh, I would use it, for them at all. Uh, most nurseries that grow things, I imagine Fanix would be happy to have most things back. If they are clean, the rigid plastic is recyclable. They, you know, they want clean things to go into recycling. Plastic films are not as recyclable, but I would start out offering them to your nurseries. Okay, that sounds great. Well, thank you very much, and you enjoy your day at Fanix. You know I will do it. It's always <laughs> good right. to talk to you, Maggie. Thank you. Thank Goodbye. you. Mm-hmm. Bye. It dehydrates the plants, damages, pickles right. the plants, as it were. Alcohol is usually applied where you can get after them with a Q-tip or something like that. Works fine on African violets, but it's a little hard to do a whole row of black-eyed peas that way. Um, if you're, and I, you know, it's certainly good to be concerned about spinosad when you have a lot of butterflies and bees around, but you could just use the insecticidal soap. Uh, that alone is probably going to be one of the best and safest things. On other plants, we use neem against black-eyed peas, but I just neem, I'm, I'm reluctant to use it on food crops. I know they say it's safe, but I would try just insecticidal soap. And do keep in mind that a uh, dead mealybug looks pretty much like a live mealybug, so... Um, <laughs> I suspect you did a better job of killing them than you realized with the spinosad soap. Uh, but the other thing, you know, just that strong stream of water, just blasting them off is going to, um, you're probably never going to eliminate them, but you're going to knock their numbers back to where they're no longer, you know, really a really damaging population of them. And sadly, when we get toward the end of their growing season and they are, you know, stressed by by heat and time, uh, you're never going to eliminate them. We just have to try to keep their numbers below the threshold of where they're causing a lot of damage. Okay. Well, they've spread over a little bit to some peppers I have, so I'll try the spinach, I mean, not the spinach, the insecticidal soap on those. Yeah. Safers is the brand that's been around for probably 50 years, Safers Insecticidal Soap. But uh, there's some other ones out there as well, and I think they all work very well. If we do cool down tomorrow like they're forecasting, you can use it any time of day. If you're spraying this afternoon when we're supposed to be up into the 90s, I would either spray early today or late this evening. But I think you're going to find that your insecticidal soap is going to really set the mealybugs back to where they're not having that much of an impact on your peas okay uh well i am fixing the i am fixing to pull them up and so the the follow-up question to this is are those things going to be in that flower bed or in this this bed and the next thing i plant i'm going to have to deal with them too 
As we get into cooler weather, no. Mealybugs are a hot weather pest. And um, as, as I always say, I don't ever talk about normal weather in Texas. I talk about typical weather. And if we move into a typical fall and winter pattern, um, they're not going to be an issue to you. One thing that I would work at doing is controlling any ants in the garden, especially fire ants. You can always use something like come and get it. Because the way mealybug is most commonly established on plants the ants physically take and, and put the mealybug on the plants, and then they go back to feed on a sugary excrement that the mealybug produces. But if oh. you were sitting out there watching, you would see the ants carrying mealybugs around them and establishing them on your plants, same way they do with aphids. I didn't know that because I have had a problem with ants. Okay, yep. that's good And know. where you have ants, that is, they're the ones that are spreading your mealybugs around and bringing them back in after you kill them out. So normally if you can control the ants, that'll go a long way toward controlling your mealybugs. Okay, good. Um, okay, one more quick, quick question about an amaryllis. I have a bulb that I planted um, Oh, two years ago, and it's never bloomed. It's really pretty green. Do I need to quit watering that now? Or yes. Is it too late? Yes. Is, is, is it one of the big amaryllis, so what we call hippiastrum, the one with the big showy flowers and the bulbs probably somewhere between the size of a tennis ball and a softball? Well, it was a, a chipped bulb that I planted, and okay. I honestly don't know what kind it is. <laughs> okay. Well, there's a smaller variety of amaryllis that we grow as, you know, literally a yard perennial. Normally, red bulbs aren't as big. What you have sounds more like uh, what we call hippiastrum or Dutch amaryllis, and it has to go through a dormant season. Uh, in its native Africa, it's the dry season that puts the bulb into dormancy. This is a time that it starts forming the... Uh, little called bulb primordia, which are then going to develop into the buds and make those big, beautiful flowers. If you totally stop watering it, if you force it to go completely dry for about six or eight weeks, then you can start watering and feeding. You may not have flowers for Christmas, but you'll certainly have flowers before Valentine's Day. Well, hot dog, okay. We'll try that. I just feel so bad about not watering it. <laughs> <laughs> well, remember, it um, it's part of its normal life cycle, and you've got to force it into dormancy um, if you know in order to get it to bloom. Mother Nature's been working on this for you know the past ten to thirty thousand years, so you're not going to cause that problem, that plant any problem by telling it to do what Mother Nature would be making it do. Otherwise, it's just going to be a nice, pretty green plant. Nobody grows amaryllis for the leaves. Yeah, no. Oh, okay. I appreciate your help very much. Always a pleasure, Ricky. I appreciate the call this morning. You have a good Sunday. Thank Thanks, you. Bob, you Certainly. Bye. Bye. Looks like Cindy is up next. Uh, good morning, Cindy. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing good, uh, except for my hand is all swollen from ant bites yesterday. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, Get that comfrey on it. Yeah, well, I don't have one. I had one before, and it died, so I don't have another one. But I've been putting stuff on it. Yeah, baking baking soda. There are various things that will help, but... Uh, I, you know, there there are a few things in life that I despise more than fire ants. They're fine out in the pasture, let them eat all the ticks, but I sure hate to see them in the garden or the flower beds. Yeah, well, this is one place that I, I want to know how do I get rid of because I was 
uh, cleaning up a whiskey barrel that I had potatoes in in the spring. Uh-huh. And that, I was going to plant something in it, and there's ants everywhere. Well, so, the diatomaceous earth, diatomaceous earth will work very quickly. Um, if you don't have anything growing in there, the instant death thing is to uh, use just a little orange oil and water. Orange oil, of course, can damage the roots of plants, but it doesn't stay in the soil. So if the whiskey barrel's empty now, you know, mix it up about, you know, three or four ounces of orange oil to a gallon of water. Pour it through there, and the ants are dead in 30 seconds, and that's the fast, easy way where you're not dealing with plants. Now, if you have plants in there, you can use the orange oil much more dilutely. You can use diatomaceous earth. Uh, if you want to wait a couple of days, the Fertilone product called Come and Get It is a bait-type insecticide that works specifically on fire ants and harvester ants. All of those things will kill the fire ants, but if it were me, if I had a pot with uh, nothing growing in it, I'm going to get out the orange oil and water and be very happy for them to die very quickly. Then how soon can I plant something in it? Um, I give it 24 hours and then replant. Okay. Um, okay, I'll do that. But I wanted to plant either some long beans or something in it. Oh, yeah. Like there's <laughs> there's not a single day of the year there's not something we can be planting. So, yeah, I'm not going to leave that pot empty for very long. But I'd, I'd, give it, uh, I'd give it 24 hours just for the orange oil to neutralize. And uh, um, if you wanted to repot this afternoon, I would put your orange oil and water on. I would kill the ants. I'd wait about an hour. And then I would flush. I'd just take the hose and just, just uh, flush that pot very, very thoroughly. Uh, just, you know, what is it they say the answer to pollution is dilution. Uh, just dilute yeah. that material down as as thoroughly as possible, and then you can plant this afternoon without worrying about it. Okay. Now, earlier you talked about uh, snow peas. Yeah. And yesterday I planted, uh, well, I thought I was planting snow peas. Maybe I am, maybe I'm not. I have three packages here, and uh, two of them say, uh, pea snap or sugar snap, and uh-huh. one of them says snow. So are they the same or are they not? They are all, uh, the proper name that we really should apply is edible pod peas. Uh, there are two groups of true peas. Now, black-eyed peas are actually a bean that we plant in the warm weather. But of our cool weather peas, we have edible pod peas and we have shell peas, the peas where we, you know, take the little pea out of the shell and discard it. And then we have uh, the edible pods, which some of them are called sugar snaps, some of them are called snow peas. They go by lots of different names. So what you have, all three of those are edible pod peas. You'll have to read on the package. Some of them will be a bush form. Some of them will be a vining form. I personally like the vining form better, but uh, both of them will produce very well for you where you are. Okay. And, yeah, I put a, a tomato cage in there. Let yeah. them climb up the well, again, again, read those seed packages because uh, if you have any of the bush varieties, there's no need to, you know, use that tomato cage when you could be growing something else up on it. Uh, there, there are bush 
edible pod peas just like there are bush beans and uh the the bush form of the edible pod peas require no support at all so just look and be sure what you have they're all going to produce absolutely yeah. delicious things that are you know six dollars a pound in the grocery store so it's hard to have too oh, many yeah. too many peas yeah yeah yeah, it says uh, grown on a trellis, so... Okay, yeah, then your tomato cage would be just fine then. Okay, and I have uh, two Gerbera daisies that I planted that apparently are getting too much sun in the afternoon. They're, they're, I want to transplant them to a different place. Is it okay, okay to do it now? It is okay, but I suspect that you have more of a water issue or perhaps they're just not totally established because gosh i remember a bed roberta planted at her former house that was blazing hot afternoon sun that got totally neglected after she and her husband sold the house and so uh, the gerber that comes out of the greenhouse grows out in the sun may take a little while to adjust but uh, Gerbers are normally happy in total full sun, and if you move them in very much shade, they won't bloom very well. So if you want to give them a little more shade, yeah, you can dig them and transplant them this afternoon. But uh, uh, they may just be getting used to the sun, and um, I, like I say, I don't think I've ever really seen a Gerber getting too much sun once they get established. Okay. All right, well, then I'll think about it, whether I want to water more or <laughs> Or just give them a little more time. You know, so many of the plants that we buy, so many of those plants I took off that semi this morning, um, those things are grown in perfect conditions in greenhouses, and uh, they're beautiful the day you get them, but a lot of them, which are grown as cut flowers like the Gerber daisies are, they're just a little tender when we first get them, and it takes them a little time to uh, get used to the idea that they're living in Texas. So not necessarily a matter of more water. Sometimes it's just a little matter of a little more patience. Okay. And then earlier you were talking about the amaryllis, and I right. did dig up the one, and it's sitting in the greenhouse just waiting there. But my other two that are keep blooming year after year after year, right. they're blooming again. I've never <laughs> had them bloom twice. I, they're confused, but again, this weather, this weather has been confusing to people as well as plants. And there's some things that think it's spring. I've seen some fruit trees in bloom uh, this month, so they're just a little confused. Don't count on it happening again, but enjoy the flowers and um, let them have their green foliage for a while. Then force them into dormancy, and you'll have more flowers. Yeah, when we had that little bit of rain a few weeks mm -hmm. ago, my fat silver started blooming again. Yep. Well, see, there are many things that induce dormancy in plants. Uh, winter temperatures are what we always think about, but in lots of the world, uh, plants are put into a dormant state through a dry period, and in cases of, of some of the things like the citrus tree, you can force them into dormancy either with cold or with drought, and so they're just really confused about what the season is right now. Chances are any fruit that sets is not going to develop well through the winter months, so uh, I'm not going to really count on that. These almost certainly will bloom again in the spring, but they're, they're just a lot of confused plants out there right now. Yeah, a lot. 
Okay, I have <laughs> one more question. Okay. Um, I talked to you before about an evergreen shrub to put between two catawbas that okay. get, you know, sun um, in the wintertime or more sun in the wintertime and then otherwise when the catawbas are, are blooming, then they would mm-hmm. be filtered. Right. And you suggested an abelia. Well, uh-huh. if I can't find an abelia that I want or that I okay. like, would a thryallus work? Thryallus is uh, going to freeze back to some extent in the winter. My thryallus, and I live north of you, never fail to come back, and many winters they don't freeze at all. But the years that we get a cold winter, thryallus will freeze down, whereas abelia is cold-hardy down probably to zero degrees without any freezing at all. So I love thryallus. It's one of the most ever-blooming plants in the world. It is uh, you know, it's colorful spring, summer, and fall, but if we have a very cold winter, expect that it will freeze back to some extent. I've never had it die, but I've had it freeze almost to ground level a couple of really cold winters. Okay. Well, then I'll be, I'll be looking for the abelia then. Keep looking, and um, I'll keep looking for other things that might please you as well. So you and Terry get out and have a good afternoon. Okay, well, thank you, and you have a great day sitting outside. <laughs> I'll do it. Thank you, Cindy. All right, back to gardening. Looks like we're going to talk to Jim and Pat and Brian. Let's just keep going here, Chris. Let's uh, bring up Jim. Good morning, sir. Good morning. I have morning. a question about watering. Um, my drought-resistant plants, I think I overwatered and didn't get any blooms on anything this summer. And what kind uh, of plants are we talking about? Um, lantanas mainly. Okay. Um, lantana is going to bloom. The two things lantana, three things lantana likes, lots of sun, lots of water, and lots of fertilizer. So I, I don't think too much water would have inhibited your lantana, but uh, I perhaps would increase the fertilizing and be sure they're in full sun. Beyond that, um, they ought to be blooming for you. Okay. Well, I probably didn't do the fertilizer, so that's probably what it was. Got a little information for all you about the armadillos that I was fighting. Okay. H E B. I got uh, the hottest peppers I could get. The little orange peppers that are about <laughs> golf ball size. Yeah. Got them all up. I made a uh, sun tea out of it. Strained it. Put it into my sprayer. Put it into the dirt around all the flower beds, and I haven't seen an armadillo since. That is wonderful news. I appreciate you sharing that with us. I, I, I hope you uh, you washed your hands very thoroughly before you rubbed your eyes or, you know, any other tender places. There are peppers out there now that are so hot, they're actually looking for military applications for these things. So uh, I did not realize the armadillos were that sensitive to it, but you probably got one of the habaneros, which are among the really hot ones. So uh, I very much appreciate you sharing that with us. Yeah, I learned that rubbing your eyes the hard way after that. <laughs> I I did this. I was doing stuff to jalapenos one time, and I was using using my thumbnail to you know take out the, what they call the omentum and the seeds. And man, I tell you, all of a sudden it felt like my hands were on fire. So I think we've all 
I think what is it Will Rogers said? Good judgment comes mainly from experience, which comes mainly from bad judgment. Um, I would yeah. tell you that I think one other thing you could probably do with your hot peppers uh, is you stick them in the blender and, and chop them up that way. And uh, that would probably also work if you don't want to take the time to make the tea. But obviously you've hit on a winning solution, and uh, hopefully hopefully you'll stay armadillo-free. Yeah, I just wanted to share it with all the folks out there that just love armadillos and don't want to see them die. <laughs> well, you know, that's that's the old saying around here is, uh, why did the chicken cross the road? And that was to show the armadillo that it really could be done. I just don't, you know, they are certainly not the world's brightest creatures, but they can be very, very damaging in the garden. But they they are certainly an interesting part of Texas. But um, uh, truly, what I will tell you, let's back up for just a minute to your uh, drought-loving plant, so to speak, is there's really no such thing as too much water, but there is too often so on your lantanas, your salvias, uh, all these things that you would expect to get good flowers out of in the summer months, be sure that when you water them, you do a very thorough job of it, but then wait until you can stick your finger down in the soil and just dry a couple of knuckles deep, then give them a very thorough watering, and that should keep you with a lot more flowers through the summer months. Okay, well, I had it heavily mulched, and I think I did water too, too uh, much and too often. Well, and now you now you know, and next summer's going to be better. Very good. Well, thank you, and enjoy your program. I sure appreciate it, Jim. Thank you for the call this morning. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, Pat is up next. Uh, Chris pushes the button back at the station, and I say good morning, Pat. Hello. Hi. Yes, uh, I'm calling about my avocado tree. It's yes, sir. The, the leaves on the ends are turning brown, and I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. Having brown tips on the leaves or having brown edges on the leaves um, is a sign that something is bothering the roots. Uh, it sounds, you know, like one of those uh, just covering all bases to say it's either too much or too little water. But uh, what what is happening is something is damaging the roots, and it can either be from too much water or from too little. Are the avocados in the ground or are they in flower pots? The I just got the one tree. It's in the ground. Okay. Um, my suspicion is always that it is uh, staying a little too dry, and it doesn't necessarily mean you're not watering often enough, but it may be that you're not watering thoroughly enough to get the water throughout the root system, and um, it's most likely a temporary problem. I mean, this could also be from weed killers, which I doubt you use. could also be from synthetic fertilizers, which I doubt you use. So I think it is almost certainly a water issue. As hot and dry as it has been, I'm seeing, you know, 25 cases of too dry for every one too wet that I see, but um, I I don't believe it is a long-term serious problem. Uh, the new growth is coming out, the newest leaves on the avocado, how do they look? Uh, they look pretty good. Yeah, then I think you're pretty much beyond the problem. Just be sure on your watering that you're just flooding it when you water. But wait until you can stick your finger down in there and it's dry a knuckle or two deep before you water again. And uh, always watch the newest growth. That tells you what kind of conditions the roots are in right now today. If your new growth is coming out looking good, then you're getting beyond whatever the problem was. And I wouldn't be real concerned about it at all. Okay, well, I, 
I did fertilize in the spring, and I'm thinking about fertilizing again later this month. Is that Are you using a time? liquid fertilizer or dry fertilizer? It's dry. Yep. And is it, uh, I don't mind you telling me the brand, what kind of fertilizer is it? I think it's called uh, Rose Grow or Grow Rose Yeah, Rose, Rose Slow by Maestro Grow. Uh, that's a very good organic fertilizer and should be fine for your avocados. I would be using it about every two or three months uh, if you're looking to get, you know, really good growth and flowering and fruit production out of them. Uh, uh, I think four or five times a year is going to be better than a couple of times a year. But Rose Glow is, uh, is a very good fertilizer. Uh, you would make it even better if you would add a product like Medina's Growing Green or uh, one of the products that has a little bit more nitrogen in it. But uh, if Rose Glow is what you like, it's, it's an outstanding organic fertilizer made by a company called Maestro Grow. I did this spring put some, uh, it's another word for iron, uh, what do you call it? Uh, oh, uh, the ironite, or yeah, magic sand, or green sand? I forget the name of it, but anyway, uh, I was told by the nursery that I bought it from that it, because the leaves were turning a kind of a funny yellow-looking color in the veins, and they said it mm-hmm. was lack of iron and they gave me this fertilizer and I put that on there about a half the bag not all of it and it did clear the problem up I was wondering if okay. I should put the rest of it on there this fall if it is uh, either green sand or magic sand uh, those are very good products if it is the product called ironite uh, it is made from mine tailings out of Colorado and that's not one of the ones I really like but if it's either green sand or magic sand yeah there's uh, you could use as much as you like it's probably our best natural source of iron for all kinds of plants now having a little bit of yellowing can be lack of iron can be lack of nitrogen can be um, a number of different things but the lack of iron is certainly one of the most common problems and green sander magic sander probably the best way i know of to take care of it okay it seems to be okay now and Good. Uh, as far as watering goes i've been watering about once or twice a week and i'll just uh, let the the water trickle on there for an hour and a half or two hours that's probably a great way to do it um how long has the tree been in the ground oh it'll be uh two and a half years i believe okay i have any any avocados this year but had a whole bunch of blooms and they all fell off yeah that's kind of normal the first year or two hopefully it's getting some rough bark so it'll be more cold tolerant Uh, just rather than try to go by the calendar stick your finger in the ground let it get good and dry for the upper inch of the soil and then water when it gets to that point and uh you should do just fine with it okay i've got uh buffalo grass kind of creeping up around it is that Mm -hmm. any harm in that Buffalo grass is going to compete a little bit for water, a little bit for nutrients. Uh, it's not really going to hurt anything. Uh, the way that buffalo grass usually or any other grass causes problems to plants is when somebody that's not careful gets out there with a weed eater to try to cut down the grass and they girdle the trunk of the plant. So I'm not going to worry too much about the buffalo grass, but if it's getting too close to the tree, take it out with a little grub and hoe or something like that rather than using a line trimmer because it sure is easy. It only takes uh, a fraction of a second to do a lot of damage to a to a tender tree trunk like that so uh, not worried about the buffalo grass but be very very careful if you if you do decide to trim it okay 
Well, thanks a lot. Appreciate My it. pleasure, Pat. Appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. Bye. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. Brian's next. Good morning, Brian. Good morning. How are you this morning, Bob? I'm just enjoying being outside on a on a pleasant morning and uh, very much anticipating this uh, supposed cold front that's on the way. Yeah, maybe we'll see the high nine, uh, high eighties tomorrow instead of nineties, right? Um, we we will remain <laughs> eternally optimistic. I, I, this has been a hot summer and fall. I don't care how oh, you look at it. I'd I'd rather have it hot than super cold. But man, it's been kind of the extremes this summer. Yeah, it sure has. Hey, listen. First off, uh, we we survived execution over here, or stay of execution anyway, over here at the Guadalupe River and all our lakes, and we're happy about that. Very Hopefully good. We can keep going going our direction. But uh, I've been uh, studying um, a little bit up on aquaponics, mm-hmm. and I was wondering what your thoughts were, and if there was any real good books out there that you might know of that would give me detailed. Um, instructions for how to set a system up i'd I'd really like to be able to use fish mm-hmm. for for the uh, nutrient medium and um and I, i'm wondering whether it, it's better to have the the plants with the roots you know in the water all the time or have that air gap that they talk about in certain types and uh, just some of your thoughts on it bob i just you know i i would have some of both um aquaponics is uh the concept is very good it is very space efficient it is a kind of thing that countries that are challenged for having arable land uh, you make very good use of uh for the most part in texas we have more land than we have water so it's not something that is real widely used um the probably your best resource there's a company um called bright ideas uh, their flagship store is in Austin. They also have a store in northwest San Antonio. Uh, the owner's a fellow named Troy, and he is probably the most knowledgeable person around about aquaponics. Uh, Shane over at uh, Water Garden Gems can certainly tell you a lot about plants, but uh, I, I think the folks at, uh, at Bright Ideas probably are going to have more useful information, and I would defer to them if there is a good book out there. I don't know of a real good book on the subject of aquaponics, but uh, um, if anybody knows about one, it would be Troy at uh, Bright Ideas. Uh, it's again, it's kind of like hydroponics. Uh, I I like it even better than hydroponics because it's a more holistic approach to you know right. providing more than just uh, giving them nutrients in an aqueous solution. But um, is it something that is going to be the wave of the future in Texas? No, I don't think so. Is it something that would be fun to experiment and try? Uh, absolutely. But you're still going to get better tasting tomatoes and more production, I'm afraid, from a traditional in-ground system. But if you're limited by space or, you know, if you live on the 20th floor of an apartment building or something like that and obviously can't maintain the traditional in-ground garden, uh, certainly something worth looking at. It's it's a very viable concept, whether it's really economically uh, any better um, or whether it's any more productive i think the jury is still very much out on that but it, it's it is a fun concept well my main reasoning for it is is uh, between the combination of natural light 
and grow lights that I might be able to have fresh tomatoes in January off the vine, something like that. You can, um, you certainly can. You're going to have to experiment and see if you're getting, you know, the same quality of vine-ripe tomatoes as you're used to out of the garden in the summer months. Um, You can accomplish the same thing with a warm greenhouse um, that you could with aquaponics. But, you know, by all means, uh, give it a try and see how it works for you. It has become one of the things that has really made it, uh, more of a viable idea is the introduction of LED lights, which we have LED light sources that provide the right wavelength of light. And, of course, LED is so energy efficient um, that uh, growing things under lights, whether it's hemp, whether it's tomatoes, whether it's uh, lettuce or anything else, is certainly uh, we've just had a whole new world opened up to us with the advent of uh, of LED lighting. So, um, yeah, I would research it. I would certainly start small. I wouldn't be the guy that wants to put an right. acre under cover and do it. But, uh, you know, keep good records. Yeah. That's the other thing on any experimental thing you're taking on. You want to know what works well. You want to know what doesn't work well. And unless you keep pretty good records, you're going to say, hmm, I wonder what I did that made that grow so well. Yeah. Uh, so your exactly. record keeping is going to be critically important. But uh, I look forward to hearing back from you uh, how you do with it. Like I say, call, call Troy. Uh, he's usually at the Austin store, but if you call the San Antonio store, they can probably tell you which days he's there. And uh, he would be the person I would turn to for the best information on it. The The name of that that store again, sir? Is Bright Ideas. Bright Ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Okay. Big, well, big into LED lighting. <laughs> you do the same. <laughs> and uh, I really do look forward to hearing from you, Brian. I wonder, uh, hope you'll share with us what you learn about the process. Sure will. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, sir. Certainly. Goodbye. All right. Back to gardening. We're going to talk to Claudette, Leonard, Martin, and Scott. And Claudette is up first. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I have a crazy question, I guess. Probably no one besides... <laughs> everybody that tells me that, it turns out to be a really good question that everybody wants an answer to. So how can I help you today? Um, my rosemary has died and also my lavender. And they're right next to each other. Uh, about mm-hmm. the middle of summer, all of a sudden, a couple of the branches of the rosemary died turned brown whatever and then just like whole plants just would die overnight and how long have these plants been in the ground um probably oh gosh a year and a half two and a half something like that i think that they just have not been getting the water they need rosemary is a drought tolerant plant but uh, this summer's been beyond dry there a lot of places have had virtually well that haven't had a good enough rainfall to water plants in three or four months. And unless we are with rosemary, unless we are soaking it very thoroughly once a week or so, it hangs on for a while. And unfortunately, when it starts looking bad, it's usually already dead. It just hasn't, you know, turned totally brown yet. And the same thing's true of lavender. Uh, there's no particular insect or disease. Now, I talked to a gentleman yesterday that had some rosemary that's like 15 years old. And when you get to that point, uh, that rosemary is just at the end of its normal life. But year and a half old rosemary, 
should be vigorous, should be doing very well, but um, they certainly have not been able to exist on their own. They've needed a lot of support with both water and nutrients this summer. Okay, because I had asked someone about it, and they said, oh, it, you watered it too much. So then I didn't nah. water it at all. So. Yeah, it's, what, what, here's what I always tell people about watering is there's no such thing as too much water, but there is too often. When you water a plant, you should really, really, really flood it. If a quart is good, 10 gallons is better. But then don't water again until that soil is dried about an inch deep, about a knuckle deep. And if you follow that rule, you will almost never go wrong on house plants or rosemary or flowers or trees and shrubs. Uh, because when you water, you want to be sure you get the water all the way through the pot. And then we just don't do it again until that upper inch of soil is dried. And, and just don't ever try to water by the calendar. That's probably with sprinkler systems that we set which day we want them to go off and all but um, plants shrubs herbs especially like rosemary it's just a matter of the best moisture meter in the world is your index finger and um, like I say the bad thing is that once rosemary starts looking bad it's very hard to turn it around okay okay well that's good to know um, also what about pencil holly um, I've lost some of those too Sky Pencil Holly has turned out to be not as hardy as we had really hoped. Uh, they have come out with a new one called Scarlet's Peak, uh, P-E-A-K, and then there's the old Will Fleming, and both of those have about the same shape and the same berry production as Sky Pencil, but they seem to be much hardier plants. So, uh, um, uh, sky pencil is just, it's one of those ones that is real picky about soil and about water, and it seems to be fine in Houston, but just about everybody I talk to in, in the Hill Country, they're replacing it with Scarlet's Peak or with Will Fleming and doing much, much better with it. And do y'all have those? Uh, we did yesterday. Things change in a hurry, but I, the last time I looked, we had both, uh, uh, five gallon, seven gallon, and even some fifteen gallon in the uh, Scarlet's Peak. Okay, and when is the best time to plant that? Is this time of year okay, or should I wait till spring? Or? <laughs> no, uh, fall is the best time. You know what? I always say the best time is five years ago, but second best time. If I had to pick the two best months for planting any kind of landscape plants, uh, it would be October, November. Uh, and the reason for that is summer is much harder on our plants than winter is. And uh, they, that way they have all winter to get their roots established. Planting this time of year, they'll be a whole lot better prepared for next summer. So just as soon as it's convenient for you, that's when I would do that planting. All right. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate you and your show. Well, Claudette, you're very kind, and I appreciate you calling this morning. This lady that came in the nursery yesterday had a package of leaves, and she said, well, I brought in my curl leaves, but I noticed your citrus trees have some curl leaves, too. I tell you the truth, Martin, I think every citrus tree in Texas has some leaf curl going on with a hot dry, windy weather we've had, and I'm not concerned about it at all. Now, if you see any little white webbing, if you look on the back of the leaves and you see little tiny, you know, white to beige-colored creatures running around, you may have some mites there. They may be contributing to the curling, but most of the curling we're seeing on the trees right now is strictly environmental and nothing to be concerned about. Okay. Now, when is a good time to trim the lower branches on those citrus trees. 
Well, first of all, there is no reason to trim those lower branches unless you just want to make it look more like a tree. The most productive citrus is a bush, not a tree. So if you if you want to make it tree-like, you can do that 365 days a year. But realize any time you, you cut on that, you're sacrificing some of next season's fruit. Now, as far as the top of the tree, I like to do any pruning that I need to do there while the tree is actually in bloom, which is typically uh, late January, February, even early March, depending on where you are. Because if I trim it while it has flowers on it, I can remove limbs that have very few flowers and therefore will have very little fruit, leave the limbs that have the most flowers, and that way I'm not really impacting my fruit production. But that's more for trimming, thinning, changing the shape of the top of the tree, simply taking off the lower growth to make it more tree-like. You do that 365 days a year. Okay. Now, what can I do? I got a tangerine tree that's got termites in the trunk of it. What can I do to get rid of those termites? You can make a fairly strong concentration of orange oil. We're talking probably, oh, three or four ounces to a gallon of water and actually spray that on the trunk of the tree. It will kill borers underneath. Um, it will kill termites as well. I would not, you know, apply enough of it that you're drenching the roots because that's strong. It could harm the roots of your tangerine, but on the bark, it will kill, without hurting the bark, it will kill the insects that are underneath it. Now, termites do not eat live wood. Uh, any woody tree out there, be it uh, an oak tree, a pecan tree, an elm tree, or a citrus tree, the central core of the tree is a tissue called xylem. The cells have no nuclei, and they are, in effect, dead cells. Uh, and the termites may be eating on some of that tissue. But the termites, uh, the kind of termites we have here, are not going to attack live tissue. They're not going to eat the green, healthy wood on your tree. So it's nice to get rid of them, but um, they're, they're not really a threat. They're sort of a normal thing. But that orange oil and water will get them under control very quickly. But I don't want you to lose any sleep over it. These things are not going to kill your tree. Okay. Now, can you help me for my grass? Uh, you're going to have to water it yourself, and that's what grass really needs. I, it is time to put out. I think it's time to do a fall application of fertilizer, but uh, what what specifically is going on with your grass? No, what I got, I got that azoysia grass, and it's okay. beautiful. Uh-huh. It's at least three inches tall. Okay. I don't cut it short. I let it grow so it stays green year-round. Yep. Uh, it's a great plan. In the last couple of years, I haven't put no type of fertilizer on it. What would be the best type of fertilizer to put it on? Put on it? Any any good organic fertilizer. I'm sitting here looking at uh, bags of Medina granular fertilizer. I'm looking at Espoma organic lawn food. Uh, looking at Nature's Creation, uh, what they call premium lawn food. Those are all good organic fertilizers, and I would be happy with any of them. Uh, most areas, Medina is the easiest brand to find, and it is a very good fertilizer. But uh, if you find Grow, if you find Espoma, if you find Nature's Creation, um, any of those are going to be great for your grass. Okay. Very good. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure. You have a wonderful Sunday. Thank you. you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. All right. It's going to be Scott, James, Louise, and Rita. And Scott's up first. Good morning. Hey, Bob. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great this morning. How about yourself? 
I'm waiting for that cold front, buddy. <laughs> Every person I talk to over here in Phoenix and uh, my crew here from the radio station, we're we're having that same discussion uh, every few minutes about how much nicer tomorrow's going to be. Yeah, I don't want what Montana's got, but I would rather have just a little bit cooler. Well, I, my friends up there are looking at about 18, 19 degrees most of these mornings, so uh, that's why I go to Wyoming in the summer and stay in Texas in the winter. <laughs> yeah, man. I hear you. Hey, Bob, so mostly I'm in a, a listener of your show, try to learn here and there. I'm not, I'm more of a, plant life are more of an adversary for me where I live. And um, okay. my question, question for you is, I've got a bunch of what I consider nuisance plants. I think there's some weesats. There are things that come up with needles on them, like mm-hmm. one-inch needles. Right. And what I want to do, rather than just hack them out of the ground and burn them, is I want to relocate them along the fence line and have kind of a, uh, a natural fence also. Okay. And I just didn't know. I heard you say for a previous caller that uh, October and November were good months to plant. So would that hold for these kind of guys, too, that I'm just going to cut out and remove? Well, somewhere else? yeah, I, I don't really want to burst your bubble, but here's the thing about Wesatch, about Mesquite, about a lot of these really tough survivors that you have on your property, and that is that they are tough survivors because they've got a root system that goes from your place to, you know, a long distance in every direction. And as such, they are very hard to transplant because it's hard to get enough of their root system for them to survive. I mean, if they're over about six inches to a foot tall, your chances of transplanting them successfully are they just get lower and lower and lower and it gets to the point you get something with any size to it at all it's almost a hundred percent of the time it's it's a failure trying to transplant it so uh yes what i was saying about transplanting to the cool weather is absolutely true october november late october november december january those are the months that you have the best chance of transplanting but these even these trees that are waist high or shoulder high the best tree digger in the world is still going to lose a high percentage of them. So I'm going to tell you two things. Look for little bitty trees to transplant and collect seed. As you know, we satch and mesquite both make a lot of seed. If you want to have about 100% germination, you let those seeds dry, and then you scratch them very lightly with a file of some sort. I had one caller one time said he just takes a pair of pliers and just holds them up for an instant against uh, one of his grinding wheels in his shop but you're gonna be you can create that thorny dense barrier real easily along your fence line but it's going to be done more from seed and more with little bitty plants than it is trying to start with something that already looks like a tree they just you know i've tried i've tried moving uh, agarita i've tried moving a lot of things and i know what i'm doing and still when they're any size 99 percent of them die on me so i've learned when it's wise to go with either little bitty plants or seeds because as you well know they grow quickly enough as it is if you support them with a little bit of fertilizer and water uh they'll be as tall as you are in a couple of years time okay well it looks like you've saved me some labor i appreciate that um i'm probably just going to continue to remove the bigger ones and the little the little ones seem to uh 
I was thinking that would probably be the smartest thing to try to move. But yeah, but but we're talking little bitty. You know, uh, a four foot tree is little bitty compared to a thirty foot tree. But well, a four I, foot I tree, even that size, is hard. What I'm what I'm talking about. I'm talking more about bushes. It's more of a shrub. Yeah. Yeah. But it's got needles on it. So um, I, I'll look through the little tiny ones that are a foot tall, maybe. Yeah. And that's those guys you spot and just cut, cut back the other guys so we can enjoy our yard. Yeah, that, that, that's that's the best way to do it. But collect some seed, too, Scott, because most of that stuff okay. grows pretty easily from seed, and that's going to be a big help to you, too, as well. And you call me anytime I can uh, answer those questions. That's what I'm here for. I haven't had as much fun as going uh, anything. <laughs> so well, that's help and appreciate your knowledge. All right, back to gardening. Let's go straight to the phone lines, and it's James' turn. Good morning, James. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Hey, listen, I almost forgot my gardening question because I'm so fascinated by the wildlife here. This morning. <laughs> <laughs> How many birds doing a tango around the feeder? I actually. That's a fight we got going. I got mockingbirds and red fighting over the other feeder, and I got a cotton uh-huh. and over there. But anyway, <laughs> that's the fun of living in the country. And the hummingbirds are moving through now. The ones that are there today probably won't be there tomorrow. But man, if you're like we are, you go from having 21 day to two the next. But it sure is fun seeing them all coming through. Yeah. Hey, with this plant that's supposed to be here tomorrow, oh, my dog just spotted the cottontail. Oh, anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> Should, should I should I take down the hummingbird feeder once his first front comes no. through? No, oh. the only thing about hummingbird feeders is just be sure you keep the nectar fresh. But in our area, we actually have one hummingbird called the Rufus that may be here all winter long. Uh, who knows what tells them when to stay and when to go. But the hummingbirds that you are seeing are mostly ones that are headed south for the winter, and you're their refueling station along the way. Do not, they're relying on you to keep that nectar out. And um, if anything, I'd like to say be sure the nectar's fresh, but if anything, put up extra feeders at this time of year because they really need it. Okay, I do have another one in the shed. I'll, I'll refresh them both uh, later today. Good. Hey, Very good. What I, called, what I called about what I'm concerned about, about 10 years ago or so, I uh, I was, uh, I received, I should say, some oxblood lilies from a gentleman uh-huh. who said he dug them from his aunt, I believe, homestead east of Austin. Yeah. And they've been reliable every year. But this year, I remember how wet it was in the spring. I don't recall seeing any foliage, and they have not bloomed, and I'm, I fear they may have just dried up. Um, will they come back? Should I dig them, or what would you recommend? I I definitely would not dig them. Have you gotten any rainfall in the past uh, month on your place? Yes, I called you about a month or so ago, and I got like two and a half inches almost about three four weeks ago. Huh. Well, I'm surprised they're not up and growing. But what this time of year, when they are at least trying to grow, they form that little set of leaves that starts coming up. They call that the neck of the bulb, and right. you definitely do not want to break that. And if you try to dig or transplant or move anything, we do that in the middle of the summer before they even think about starting to bloom. Now, um, at some point... Uh, you may want to do just kind of a little experimental excavation on one 
side of the area where you have them. I guess it's possible, you know, that they could have stayed too wet in the spring, but I just don't think that's likely. I mean, you see these over uh, toward East Texas where, I mean, they've had rains that make us look like, you know, like it's never given us a drop of moisture. And so long as the soil drains reasonably well, I can't imagine that they have stayed too wet. But on the other hand, um, they ought to be starting to come up. Now, uh, my own place up outside of Bernie, I've not had a lot of rain. It might have come up sporadically. I've got some areas where they haven't come up at all. I've got others that have come up and bloomed out, and I have some that are just buds opening. I was looking at them last night. So I'm not panicking at this point. But um, and it doesn't do any good to water with a hose. Uh, water out of the ground, water out of the water system, just doesn't have that same magic that rainwater does. So, be careful that you're not mowing. Be careful that you're not even walking through the areas because we want to be real careful not to break that neck on that little bulb. But um, I, uh, I, I'm surprised that you're not at least seeing some. But this is the weirdest year I have seen on oxbloods because mine in the past is sort of all or nothing. They all bloom at the same time. This year wow. I've got some just coming up and some of them all bloomed out. So let's talk again in maybe another three, four weeks and see if anything has changed because uh, I think yours may just be slow for whatever reason. Okay, I'm a little bit south of San Antonio, so I'll just be patient and hope for the best on those. I don't want to lose them. but uh, No, I'm with you. They're one of the neatest yeah, bulbs. Have your have your uh, clumps of them increased in size over the years since you got them? Well, not really. Um, they may be too crowded. I haven't seen them ever. Yeah. But they're growing in re- uh, just sandy soil, poor soil. Yeah. So they probably need to be divided. Uh, if they are still alive next year, when would I when would I divide them? And when the wow. when the foliage starts dying back. That's when we dig and divide anytime really over the summer months, as long as you can tell where they are. Do fertilize them. Um, that makes all the difference, especially in your relatively poor soils. Uh, just good liquid has to grow or something like that uh, will make a big difference in how they grow and multiply or even just dry fertilizer on the surface of the ground. The liquid is faster acting, but uh, I'd, I'd be trying to feed them at least once or twice a year, and that will make a big difference in how many you have and how quickly they reproduce. Okay, if they are like when, when I do have has to grow, and I do use Medina. So if I as soon as you as soon as you see that green foliage, uh, start feeding. Okay, all right. Hey, I appreciate it. Always a pleasure, James. Look forward to hearing back from you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Okay, bye. All right, let's go ahead and say hello to Louise up in Comfort. Good morning, Louise. Haven't heard your voice in a while. Hi, right. <laughs> but I've been listening. I've been well, listening. I appreciate that. And you're probably wondering about, like I am, what the heck Bruce Dooley is up to and why he doesn't come see us anymore. Well, I saw him in the grocery store not too long ago. He oh, good. Tail to tail. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> That's our Bruce. Well, what can I yes, do for yes. you this morning? Um, I want to know what I can do for my bearded iris now to make them bloom real pretty in the spring. Fertilize. Um, yes. we, again, if you're gonna, if you want to feed several times, use a good liquid like has to grow. Uh, if you want to just throw out some good granular Meister Grow, Medina, Espoma, Nature's Creation, any of your basic organic fertilizers um, will just do wonders for how things do in the spring. Uh, your bearded iris are. 
as long as they're getting good sun, they ought to get bigger and thicker and more blooms, you know, every year. The problem so many of us face is that the beds that were once sunny start getting shadier, and then we don't get the flowers we're used to. But fertilizing in the fall is the best way to get the most blooms in the spring. And rose glow, would that be good? Rose glow is ideal. Rose glow is great for them. Okay. Also, I want to prepare a bed for some ranunculus, and I think okay. it's about time to plant them now. It's, in my opinion, just a little early, but we're getting close to ranunculus time, and all you really need is soil that drains well. I would go ahead and put some of that rose glow in the soil where you're going to be planting your ranunculus. I might put a little bit of compost on top just to work at loosening and enriching the soil. But um, we're, we're getting close to ranunculus time. And I always do, I'm sure you knew Alton Grimm as I did for so many years. Alton taught me a long time ago, plant your ranunculus, water them first, or water them uh, when you plant them, and then don't water them again until they've started putting on green foliage because most people kill their ranunculus by watering them too heavily. And they're one of my favorite little dry bulbs. But uh, um, just, you know, good sun, soil that drains well, you can hardly go wrong with ranunculus. Yes, they're beautiful. Okay, thank you so much. And let me tell you one more thing. You probably already know this, but every year we get more and more varieties of the German iris, which are what are called rebloomers. And it's just amazing to me. My business partner has much bigger iris collection than I do, and hers bloom frequently several times over the summer months. So if you decide to add more iris to your collection, do look for some of these rebloomers because you get to, you get to enjoy them more than once a year. Okay, that's a good thought. Thank you. It's good to hear from you. You uh, have Thanks. a wonderful Sunday, and we'll talk again. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, back to the phone calls. Uh, let's see, it's Rita's turn. Good morning, Rita. Good morning, Bob. How are you? Good. I'm very well. How about yourself? I'm great. So uh, I have a couple of questions about Canis, and I'll be okay. very quick. Um, I have two huge pots that I got from you, um, uh-huh. and I have uh, Canna's, yellow Canna's in each one. I used to have Canna's in the ground. Mm-hmm. But they seem to spread in <laughs> throughout the flower yeah. bed. So I had to dig them up, and I've got them confined. But the pots are enormous. And uh, yes, ma'am. So my question is, when they bloom um, on the spike or the stem, I'm not sure what you call it. Um, and as they die, I go out and I pull off the petals as they're dying. Uh-huh. My question is, is after they completely bloom, will that stem? reform no buds. no okay. so I no it's it's it done for and uh actually that whole big stalk that came up leaves stems and all uh it does provide support to the rest of the plant it does you know form carbohydrates and sugars and things in its leaves which go down to the rhizomes and to the roots and support the plant but it's never going to produce again okay I didn't think so because I've left all of them as I've pulled off the dead flowers. Right. Uh, and I feed them, um, well, color essentials. <laughs> yeah. And um, they seem to like it, but I don't know. I've only fed them once in the spring and once, mm, maybe June or July. Um, do I? Are they prolific feeders? Should I just feed every month? You know, if you're getting good flowers and good growth, 
you're obviously doing well. If you you might get a few more flowers if you fertilized a little more often, but if you do that, the plants are just going to grow faster, thicker, and what you're going to have to do, even though they can't take over the yard like they would in the ground, every few years you're basically going to have to dig that pot up, replant about a fourth of what you took out, and give the rest of it away to somebody else because it will eventually crowd itself to where you'll reduce. You'll find it hard to keep it watered, and you probably won't have as many flowers. So feeding may increase your flowering. It's also going to increase the growth of the plant, which means it's going to be sooner that you have to dig it up and divide it and start all over again. Right. So so it's well, totally up to you. If they're doing well for you now, I wouldn't change anything you're doing. Okay, then I'm not going to change it. And one other thing, uh, as some of the leaves turn brown at the end, you know, mm-hmm. I, I would cut them off in the shape of the leaf. But um, the other day, I just started pulling off the leaf all the way down to the base, and the new ones coming out have no brown on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I think Canada's a very pretty plant when they're not blooming. I think the leaves are very pretty. Well, and if you get some of the fancier leaf varieties, Tropicana is one that has red and purple and pink and all different colors in the leaves. There's another one that has great combinations of, uh, you know, pinks and whites and greens. Um, I, I find that when I'm trying to break them off or pull them off, it doesn't work real well. But I use a little, very small pruning shear. They're called micro shears, and that's what I use. And I do the same thing. Just cut the whole leaf off and let the new leaves come out, and they stay much more attractive that way. These micro shears, do you carry those also? Is oh, there... yeah. Okay. Yeah, most any good nursery will. Okay. Thank you very much. That was my question. I appreciate it, Rita. Thank you so much. <laughs> Bye. All right. Uh, that looks like a real long distance call all the way to Illinois. Let's talk to John. Good morning, John. Hey, good morning, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm good, sir. How about yourself? Doing good. We've got a beautiful day up here, a little on the cool side, but it's a nice day. <laughs> a couple of you, uh, you send some of that cool weather down our way tomorrow. All right. I'll see if I can uh, have it uh, kind of change over at St. Louis and head your way. Perfect. Okay. Uh, number one, on, I was questioning, I was going to get some dry molasses, and it seems like the only place I can get that is right at the moment is a feed store. Is that the same thing that you've been talking about putting on your yard? Yeah, dry molasses is a microbial stimulant. Works really, really well for uh, you know your beneficial life in the soil. The thing that you have to watch, and dry molasses is not crystalline molasses. It's a substrate. Might be ground up corn cobs. Might be ground up soy. Might be ground up uh, you know alfalfa, something like that, which has then been soaked with molasses. Many brands, if they're exposed to moisture in the air, they will absolutely turn into a rock, and they will no longer be very spreadable. Uh, there are a couple of brands down here. We have a company called Nature's Creation, and uh, we have another called Nature's Guide. But these guys make one which stays loose and spreadable and open. And you just need to be sure, uh, feed stores are going to be your best places to get it, but uh, be sure that it is loose and open and don't try to store it. Get it and use it because I kid you not, it'll turn into something you could build a Hoover Dam out of. Okay. Nature's creation. Nature's 
Nature's Creation and Nature's Guide. I'm not sure which you will find most easily, and there there may be you know other organic brands up there that uh, that are also stay loose and open. Uh, if you've got a feed store that you deal with, they'll certainly be honest with you and tell you which ones stay loose, which ones turn you into a rock, and. Uh, uh, just don't make the mistake that I originally did, and I could have built a house out of the when I bought too many bags at one time and didn't get around to putting them out promptly. <laughs> okay, uh, something else. I was listening to uh, Wheel Radio, which is out of the University of Illinois, and they uh-huh. had a documentary that's 12 minutes long, and what it is was Soil Cowboy Soldiers. And what okay. it is, is you had described back in uh, early spring about a rancher that you knew that had 100 acres. He divided 20 right. acres, and then he you know, went on all 20 acres and then let it regrow and then rotated it like that. Well, they're doing the same thing. I don't know mm-hmm. where, what, or how, but they were doing the same thing. And when I heard that, I said, that's the same thing Bob had described yep. earlier. And it's sort of what the buffalo did back in the day, going from east to west, eating the land or eating exactly. the grass and then coming back. Exactly, and it's called rotational grazing. Acres USA, uh, Google Acres USA, and they'll give you they'll give you a ton of information on it. And uh, John, I appreciate the call. It's always good to talk to you, Chris. Are we done with commercials? Have we run everything we need to? Okay, very good. So uh, let's get back to these phone lines, and uh, if we can at least get uh, Roger in. Good morning, Roger. Hey, good morning, Bob. Appreciate your show. Thank you, sir. Yes. Well, um, as you know, pro- as you probably know, the loquat trees, there's a variety of different tastes that come off of different trees, uh-huh. and I found one that's really, really good. And uh, can you tell me the best chance to get a good couple cuttings off of that tree, how to go about that? Well, the the safest thing to do, and you would do this next summer, it's getting late this year, but we do what we call an air layer. And that's where we'll take a branch about the size of a pencil or slightly larger in diameter. We slice a little bit of bark off of one side. We wrap it up with uh, something called sphagnum moss. We moisten that, wrap it up, close it in foil or plastic, and leave it for about six weeks. And this is, forms what we call just sort of a pre-rooted cutting. After four to six weeks of warm weather, uh, that loquat will have put roots out all through that moss that you've wrapped around it. Then you just uh, cut that limb off, unwrap the foil or the plastic, and you've got a pre-rooted cutting. You plant it up, and you've got a whole new plant that is genetically identical to the plant that it came off of. Awesome. It's called, well, if, called if, air if layers. An option, if that's not an option for you, is there an option B that could possibly work? Well, if you had a mist set up, if you have bottom heat, you can actually root cuttings from loquats. Um, it's much easier to do in a greenhouse. I very definitely would look for a uh, what we call a propagating mat, which is a way to keep uh, your propagating medium very warm, and you'll have a better chance of it having roots. Uh, if you plant the seeds, you'll grow a lot of plants, but it's just kind of the roll of the dice. Uh, some of them are going to be better, some of them are going to be worse, some of them are going to be like the one, and you never know until it gets big enough to produce the fruit. So what you need to try to do is find a way to reproduce that plant 
where you keep the same genetics. And like I say, the play way that you're 100% guaranteed of success with an air layer, um, but a commercial grower can grow them successfully from cuttings. You and I trying to do it at home, maybe, maybe not, but it's sure worth a try. Just remember, it'll need plenty of light. Uh, you root it in a usually an inert material like perlite and uh, bottom heat, keeping it good and warm at the base uh, is what's going to if if it's going to root, it'll root in about six or eight weeks time.